When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's awfully hard to hitch the conversation into one straight line because everything leads to something else. It's hard to have just one conversation in a complicated world. And the Johnson White House in 1965 is a complicated place for sure. Everything does lead to something else. Ambition and insecurity, rich people and poor neighborhoods, civil rights and the war, the burdens and the bonds of their marriage. Still fresh from a landslide election, Lady Bird has a moment to get the American public on board with her environment meets civil rights agenda. But how? Especially as the rest of the administration is struggling to keep its focus on the work at home while things are spiraling abroad. From Best Case Studios and ABC Audio, this is In Plain Sight. I'm Julia Swig. Episode 4, Entangled. You have seen some In 1965, the president of ABC, one of only three networks that comprise all of television, is a man named Leonard Goldenson. When you're in that job, you can get on the phone with the president. He said you and someone had suggested we might have a dinner here at the White House. And I'm delighted to hear that. May I ask something else? Yes. There's a lot of back scratching on the call. It's early March, 1965, year one of what's still a very popular administration. And Goldenson isn't calling about hard news, civil rights, the war in Southeast Asia. He's calling about the First Lady. We would like to do something since Lady Bird is interested in the cultural development from a beauty standpoint of the city of Washington. Goldenson's idea is that this is a chance for Lady Bird to do for beautification in D.C. what Jackie's Emmy-winning broadcast did for the restoration of the White House. We wanted to try to do something where she would take the people through the different parts of Washington in order to help uh, stimulate the beautification of other cities in the United States. And with a lot of television still broadcast in black and white, the network wants to go all in on the production values. We want to put on this type of program in color, and I think it would be very stimulating and help her in establishing a leadership in this area. Uh, how do you feel about that? LBJ tells the network boss that Lady Bird definitely doesn't need his permission. I would think anything y'all worked out would be happy with me. I don't mess in her business. I'm kind of like Mr. Roosevelt. I let her do what she wants to. So on March 4th, 1965, executives from the network come to the White House. I joined Lyndon's luncheon group, which by now included Jim Haggerty of ABC and Leonard Goldenson, another ABC man. The lunch is on the second floor in the residence, incidentally in the same room where almost exactly 100 years earlier, Abraham Lincoln had been autopsied and embalmed. Their mission in coming was to talk to me about the possibility of doing a TV show about beautification plans in Washington. 
It would be filmed over four or five months, probably to be aired at Thanksgiving. A documentary, sort of like their I, Leonardo. I, Leonardo da Vinci had premiered the week before to good reviews and solid ratings. In fact, ABC plans to go back to the same producers for Lady Bird's project, but she's a bit reluctant. I am timid at the thought of that much exposure. I am no authority, just an interested, enthusiastic citizen. Like lots of women of her generation, Lady Bird defaults to that reflexive modesty, that deflection. But she's also aware that a primetime special is a powerful tool to speak to Americans about the environment. It's just that we must establish the line of communication between us and that lady on the other end of the set in the living room in Gadsden, Alabama, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and make them think, now what can I go out and do? So she gets past her insecurity. I've never been more scared of anything. I felt less confident or competent to undertake it. And aware of the opportunity her position presents, she agrees to do the show. I recognize I do have a sort of a tool in my hands by this title I carry, and I want to use it. And in the end, Leonard Goldenson said he would turn the idea over to a director, go to work on a possible script, and then talk with me about it later. Okay, good meeting. The ABC documentary is part of a full court press coming from the East Wing, the office of the First Lady. Lady Bird's doing TV interviews, publishing pamphlets, doing radio spots. This is Mrs. Lyndon Johnson. Ours is a blessed and beautiful land. What can you do? Look about you at the littered roadside, the polluted stream, the decayed city center. We need urgently to restore the beauty of our land. Your town needs your help, your willing hands and heart. This effort, and it's not just media relations, it's actual policy work, takes a real staff. Press Secretary Liz Carpenter hires Simone Poulain, a State Department spokeswoman, as her press aide for television. Sharon Francis, a Mount Holyoke grad and record-setting mountaineer, comes over from Stu Udall's office at the Department of the Interior to be Ladybird's full-time environmental policy aide. I assume the primary responsibility for all of Mrs. Johnson's speeches, supervising the answering of all her correspondence on beautification, conservation, urban affairs, environment, preparing the meetings of her committee for more beautiful capital. This is a new thing. With some exceptions like Eleanor Roosevelt, first ladies have often seemed ornamental. They haven't had this kind of professional operation before or needed a budget to support it. Liz writes a memo to Marvin Watson, essentially LBJ's chief of staff. She's frustrated that the administration won't cover travel for the First Lady and her team. Reading it now, it feels like what's basically a budget ask is just the latest indignity meted out by the men of the West Wing. And the resentments may have been simmering for a while. Liz opens. Is the East Wing always to be considered second-class citizens? And it goes from there. I do not see why we should be discriminated against. It is unfair to the staff. And she closes. I'll be glad to take the responsibility of whatever hell ensues. If my judgment is entrusted on this simple thing, I shouldn't be working here. So yeah, tempers are running high. Liz sends her memo on August 4th. At that moment, the West Wing is a bit preoccupied. President Johnson addresses a joint session of Congress to push a voting rights bill aimed at ending discrimination. The president referred to the events in Selma as an American tragedy.
The Civil Rights Act had passed the year before, but this urgency to pass the next bill, the Voting Rights Act, is at least in part a reaction to Selma and violence confronting the activists on the ground. And the bill is inches from done. The House, after last-minute compromises, just passed it. On August 4th, it's on the floor of the Senate. Martin Luther King is supposed to give speeches in Washington, but his travels disrupted by a bomb threat. He arrives for the signing ceremony. President Johnson signed the 1965 Voter Registration Act and pledged to millions of Americans a new chance to find a political voice. With a battery of pens and before witnesses like Negro leaders Martin Luther King, Roy Wilkins, and James Farmer, the president signed. But as is increasingly the case for the Johnson administration, there's another issue simmering in the background. Good evening. The war in Vietnam has been raging more fiercely today than ever before in its long duration. The greatest loss of American life in a single attack has occurred. For the latest from here, we go now to Bob Clark at the White House. Mr. Johnson seemed to be trying to ease the nation's jitters earlier when he popped out of the White House for a short walk. Reporters who raced after him got a pleasant smile, but no answers to their questions about Vietnam. This very same day, it's still August 4th, LBJ asks Congress for $1.7 billion to fund an increasingly unpopular war in Southeast Asia. Lady Bird waits a couple weeks before she goes to see Lyndon about her East Wing issues. I was in Lyndon's bedroom discussing with Lyndon Liz's memo to Marvin about approval of travel for the girls who worked in the East Wing. Should that travel be paid for, just as the Mayo members would? Various aides come in and out, including Marvin Watson. It sounds awkward. Very mom and dad are fighting. And then I walked out, angry and hurt, after what it must have been a very flabby presentation of my case. When I returned from the beauty parlor, I had a message that the president would like to see me in his office. I went with a certain amount of trepidation because the last thing I need to bring to him is personal problems. These are not actually personal problems. They're work problems. This is why people say it's tough to work with your spouse. In any case, LBJ relents. He knows Lady Bird is delivering goodwill and plenty of good press. He authorizes the budget. Now, the East Wing can mount a PR blitz for the beautification campaign. That summer, Lady Bird writes a 10-page spread for Life magazine and puts together a speaking tour of small American cities, towns like Peoria, Buffalo, and Omaha, to get people to realize that what they do locally in their towns can have an impact on national environmental policy. Where has the summer gone, the lovely golden summer, my lie in the hammock time, my read a mystery book time? It's Labor Day weekend at the ranch, Bloody Marys and lunch around the pool, boating and swimming at Coca-Cola Cove, their own steaks, corn from their fields, and okra from the garden. LBJ takes his amphibious car for a spin on the lake. There are brilliant, bizarre home movies of this. Lady Bird and Liz Carpenter prep for an important event coming up the next week. Liz and I spent all Saturday practically working on my speech for the Grand Tetons. Lady Bird will be speaking to the leaders of two national organizations, trying to bridge the concept of conservation with life in American cities, especially for their less privileged residents. It's a complicated balance to get right. I feel better about a speech, less frightened, more assured, when I have really worked on it myself. I did. There were about six rewrites. At the end of the holiday weekend, Bird and Lyndon make a quiet night of it, watch the news, and go to bed early. 
Lyndon woke me about four o'clock, saying he was having awful pains in his stomach. Ladybird brings him a tincture, a hot pad, an electric blanket. Nothing helps. She ends up just snuggling up next to him as he tosses and turns in misery. In the morning, they call the doctor. We didn't actually talk about what was most on my mind, and I assume on his. Could this be the beginning of a heart attack? It's a thing that always looms over them through Lyndon's numerous health scares. For a long time, months, years, I have been keenly aware how lucky we are. But here, at this moment, there was a necessity to be calm while frightened, to bridle anxiety whenever you opened your mouth. A familiar feeling. Ladybird is scheduled to fly that day to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, to give her speech. An airplane full of journalists is waiting to fly with her on a chartered DC-7. She and Lyndon decide to tell no one but their doctors, not their friends, not their staff. Bird would go as planned so as to not tip off the press. For now, it's a private moment and a poignant one. When I was getting ready to leave, I leaned over and said to Lyndon very quietly, you know this has been an especially wonderful weekend for me, don't you? He answered, only we didn't have enough time. My last glimpse of Lyndon was stretched out on the bed with the wires of an EKG attached to him. On board the plane are the press corps women who Lady Bird has gotten to know over the years, like NBC's Nancy Dickerson and Maxine Cheshire from the Washington Post. The time may come when I am totally self-conscious around newspaper women and consider them my natural enemies, around whom I must be on guard and silent. Mostly, up to now, I've had a rather easy camaraderie with them. She spends the flight playing bridge with her daughter, Linda, and a few of the women journalists. The town of Jackson Hole is the heart of the resort area, just south of Yellowstone. Ladybird is in Jackson Hole to address the National Council of State Garden Clubs and members of the American Forestry Association. Her host is Lawrence Rockefeller, grandson of John D. Rockefeller, founder of Standard Oil. Lawrence is an environmentalist. He's been working on an innovative public-private partnership to grant Rockefeller land to state and national parks around the country. This event is being held at the JY Ranch, the Rockefeller's 3,000-acre dude ranch by the Grand Tetons National Park, where the family bought up and then donated a huge amount of land in the late 1940s. Ladybird particularly appreciates his understated way of handling what today we'd call his privilege. He, in his marvelous, underplayed way, made it seem as though he were offering you no more than a cigarette and that it was the greatest pleasure. Rockefeller's become a friend. Lady Bird likes talking with him about how to boil down the goals of their environmental work. Getting on the subject of beautification is like picking up a tangled skein of wool. All the threads are interwoven. Recreation and urban renewal and mental health and the crime rate and rapid transit, and highway beautification, and the war on poverty. This is the tangle that Lady Bird is wrestling with, trying to make the connections she sees, which are not always obvious, clear to the various audiences she's talking to. Just as she's about to step up to the podium to deliver her speech, Lady Bird's Secret Service agent pulls her aside. The president would like to speak to you immediately. My heart thudded, but my voice said, Casually and politely, I hope, 
to Mr. Rockefeller on my lap, would you excuse me please a minute? And I went into a private room where there was a phone and heard Lyndon's voice, natural and hearty enough to be reassuring. He's not having a heart attack. It's just gallstones. He'll have surgery in a month, but they're still going to keep it quiet. I was relieved to hear him sounding so much like himself. He also told me to make a good speech and to give all the garden club ladies and the conservationists his thanks and greetings. So I walked back into the head table, pounds lighter and years younger, and then it was my turn. In her diary, Lady Bird quotes Lawrence Rockefeller's introduction. I think she feels like he gets her. The Constitution of the United States has not mentioned the office of the First Lady of our land. Our statute books give the position no specific power or authority, yet it can be a position of tremendous influence. Our speaker this evening has chosen to exercise her position of First Lady to the fullest extent. Looking out at her audience, almost uniformly white and well-off, Lady Bird delivers that speech she's done so many drafts of. She tells the room that nature cannot be reserved for nice neighborhoods only. I am quite sure that ugliness, she says, the gray, dreary, unchanging world of crowded, deprived neighborhoods has contributed to riot, to mental ill health, to crime. I do think it was one of the best speeches I ever made and quiet enough to hear a pin drop. Seldom do I feel proud of myself. I did this time. In the 1950s, the federal government started spending billions of dollars to build the interstate highway system. At the time, the states and cities that got the money didn't think much about the environmental impact, the effects on communities, or even the aesthetics. It was all pretty much unregulated. Junkyards and towering billboards mushroomed along new freeways. Neighborhoods, usually poor, brown, or both, were destroyed. So across the country, communities started to organize against the freeways. In San Francisco, folk singer slash activist Malvina Reynolds, you might know her song Little Boxes, wrote Cement Octopus for an anti-freeway protest rally in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. Oh, stand by me and protect that tree from the freeway misery. But the auto, concrete, and billboard industries that made millions off the new freeways have powerful lobbies in Washington, and the incentives don't exactly favor self-regulation. Increased consideration is being given to the effects of proposed highways to effective billboard and junkyard controls that will reduce the maze of commercial eyesores that blight our roadsides. If you know one thing about Lady Bird Johnson, it's probably that she was big into highway beautification. But the bill that's oddly most associated with her was just a classic mess of Washington political finagling. I woke up early and worked with Liz to talk about how the beautification bills were faring in the House and Senate. The 1965 Highway Beautification Bill was supposed to include regulations on things like billboards and junkyards and put money toward design and landscaping. To drum up support for the bill, Bird works the phones, calling various members of Congress. Liz Carpenter's on the case as well, meeting with a couple of Texas congressmen. In a memo to Lady Bird, she writes, I put on my best joy perfume and tightest girdle. It is 1965, although it could be 1955. Liz tells her the men say no one in the delegation likes the bill, but no one wants to vote against Lady Bird. Meanwhile, Bird calculates her odds and the bills grind on. 
One of them is a goner, so everybody agrees. The others are being consumed by the argument about where does the money come from, whether from the highway trust fund, which is an inviolate sort of a sacred cow to the congressman, or from the general budget. This is Washington, and there's horse trading to be done, competing priorities, the usual. The Senate passes a massively watered-down version of the bill, funding for a single year only and much looser regulations all around. Having done the horse trading and the watering down, next up is, let's see, partisan mudslinging. Bob Dole, a young Republican congressman from Kansas, starts calling the highway beautification bill Ladybird's bill. Minority leader Gerald Ford piles on. I guess it's meant to emasculate LBJ? In 1965, the idea of the first lady taking on major corporate players with actual legislation behind her, well, it got their dander up. Looking at it today, it plucks many of the knee-jerk sexist chords we heard 30 years later when First Lady Hillary Clinton got involved with healthcare. Tuesday, October 5th, was a day of tension and the end of tension. That night, Lady Bird will finally be able to let her staff know about Lyndon's gallbladder surgery. But first, she travels to a studio in Georgetown to listen to an edit of her narration for the ABC documentary. It was awful. I was reading a script written by someone else, lifeless and schoolteacherish. The whole thing looked awful and I felt sick. Then, heavy with failure, I returned to the White House, stopping along the way at Jean-Louis to get a hairdo for the afternoon's business. That afternoon's business, a diplomatic reception, a beautification event, deciding where to hang the official portrait of Eleanor Roosevelt, listening to Social Secretary Bess Abel pull her hair out about whether Lyndon will attend a reception for 900 people, members of Congress and their spouses, planned for the next night. Finally, after weeks of keeping it secret, she tells her staff that Lyndon is checking into Bethesda Naval Hospital that night. When I finished, I felt like I just coughed up a time bomb that I had been carrying. By the end of the evening, she can exhale, even laugh. Chicago Tribune cartoonist Bill Malden stops by with an autographed copy of his work. Bill had tucked under his arm the original of the cartoon of a highway winding its way among a thicket of billboards, one of which said, Impeach Ladybird. The next night, the congressional reception. LBJ does show up. The Ned Odom boys sing a salute to the 89th Congress. We salute you, Congress, for a job well done making our society a greater one. The House still has to vote on the highway beautification bill, Ladybird's bill, if you want. LBJ just owns it, telling those GOP congressmen that he needs to deliver this thing to his wife, like a box of chocolates. He's perfectly charming as he bends their arm. And around midnight, the House passes the bill. By then, Lady Bird and Lyndon are on their way to Bethesda. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's 
The economy's stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Today, gallbladder surgery would be an outpatient procedure. In 1965, it's a two-week stay in the hospital. Lady Bird has outfitted the presidential suite at the hospital with a rug for the bathroom, good hard pillows, the reclining chair from Camp David, the custom three-screen television set so LBJ can watch all three networks at once. There are some pretty grim photos of Lyndon about to go into surgery, unthinkable today. There he is, bare chest, oxygen mask. In the pictures, Lyndon and Lady Bird are focused just on each other. He asked me to come close, and he said, as soon as this is over, call my family, call Lucia and Rebecca and Sam Houston and tell them how it went. It's still major surgery, and Lyndon has a heart condition. Nobody's taking it lightly. Lucy came in, and he asked her to read him a poem from her book of poems. And then he turned to a certain page in the little blue book of prayers and asked her to read that prayer. I have never felt a room more quiet. The operation goes long. The doctors find a kidney stone and remove that too. But he emerges from surgery excited to show off his long scar to the press. His sudden light mood is infectious. The Bethesda Naval Hospital is housing its most famous patient. President Johnson was operated on here successfully for the removal of his gallbladder. The operation didn't slow the president's administrative capacity in the least. He kept in touch with Vice President Humphrey and signed a dozen bills into law. I was up early. I had breakfast with Lyndon about eight. Tea and melon balls for him. It's four days after the surgery. Lyndon is recovering in the hospital, and life is slowly getting back to normal. It was a beautiful day. Gold and blue October. And a little after two, I drove down the George Washington Memorial Parkway to the White House. She has spiced tea in the Jacqueline Kennedy Garden with an art historian to talk about the White House's acquisition of a painting by American Impressionist Mary Cassatt. Lady Bird and her staff answer some letters. They head down to the White House bowling alley. Lady Bird bowls a great game, a 118. She's pumped. Accelerated with success, I returned to the hospital just before dark through the magnificent parade of crimson and russet and gold. I walked into the room to find Abe sitting quietly by Lyndon's bedside in a somber atmosphere. That's Abe Fortas, LBJ's personal lawyer. I asked if they would like me wait if they were discussing some business and Lennon said no you might as well come in and listen to this in the margins of this diary entries transcript lady bird has marked the next section her handwriting says close for 10 years and review then she's compelled to record it but it's sensitive he was seeking abe's advice on how he could escape from the burdens of the presidency for the next indefinite period 
Seriously, this is the third time in a little more than a year that Lyndon has tried to get out of the job. Not that he doesn't have his reasons. We talked to the young Cosman who took care of him at night. He said, he's just 20. He's had a year of college. It is so sad. He may be going to Vietnam in a few weeks. By the end of that week, there'll be anti-war rallies in 40 American cities, in London, Rome, and around the world. By the end of the year, there'll be 184,000 troops on the ground in Vietnam. 230,000 Americans will have been drafted. But in the end, maybe it just boils down to this. I've got 18 task forces working, and I don't want to see one more piece of paper. That summed up the whole subject. Not one more piece of paper, not one more problem. Maybe Lyndon is suffering from post-op depression. He's human, but he's also gripped by a persistent anxiety, something that even landslide elections and legislative successes can't fix. He was like a man on whom an avalanche had suddenly fallen. It was a trapped feeling. I want to go to the ranch. I don't want Hubert to be even able to call me. They may demand that I resign. They may even want to impeach me. Abe Fortas has never seen this side of Lyndon. But Ladybird and Lyndon's depression, they go way back. So here is the black beast of depression back in our lives. LBJ asks Abe to write out a statement that Hubert Humphrey, the vice president, will be taking over the duties of the presidency for an indefinite period of time. Mostly we sat in an atmosphere of numbed silence, with Abe offering quiet legal observations on the alternatives, the way of doing it. Lyndon dictates it and a secretary types it up. There are two copies, but LBJ says he wants to keep these copies secret. He hands them to Abe, or to Ladybird. It's not clear in her account. I've tried to find those copies. The Abe Fortas papers are at Yale University, but you really can't get access to them. And the LBJ Library in Austin doesn't seem to have them. So this discovery in Lady Bird's diaries, which as far as I know, have never been heard before, at least by the public, is quite extraordinary. Coming up on In Plain Sight. Negroes are stepping up, they're waking up, and they're going to do something about what the white man did. The struggle for civil rights comes to a boiling point. Chicago's west side is a patchwork of violence at this hour. Reports of rock throwing. And the war in Vietnam ignites a movement with Lyndon and Lady Bird trapped in the middle. There was an aura of madness, a sort of mob spirit, and most of them carried signs that said, Lady Bird, bring our troops home now, or Lady Bird, beautify Vietnam. That's coming up next on In Plain Sight, Lady Bird Johnson. In Plain Sight was written and executive produced by Adam Pincus and me, Julia Swig. It's based on the work I did for my book, Lady Bird Johnson, Hiding in Plain Sight. Executive producers for ABC are Victoria Thompson and Eric Johnson. Our producer is Ann Carkey. Ali Gallo is our associate producer. Susie Liu is ABC's archival producer. Associate producers for archival are Isabel Dorval and Dana Schaefer. This episode was edited by Vanessa Lowe with help from Lindsay Cradwell and mixed by Dean White. Our theme music is Crossbone Style by Cat Power. Original music is composed by Sam Retzer. Our music supervisor is Linda Cohen. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY. 
Special thanks to Kevin Pham at Best Case Studios. And thanks to Joshua Cohan, Liz Alessi, and Stacia Deshishku at ABC Audio, Mike Kelly and Beth Hoppe at ABC News Longform, and Ian Rosenberg and Kimberly Brown, who handled our legal and standards review. In Plain Sight is a co-production of Best Case Studios and ABC Audio. Some material was edited for clarity and time. Be sure to subscribe to the In Plain Sight podcast, and if you like what you heard, leave us a review. Listen to new episodes every Monday. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.